What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen To Me Speak podcast. We are on season three, episode seven. And before I get into this episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to those of you who listened to the Euphoria bonus episode. I'm sorry it came out so late, but I hope you guys enjoyed it anyway. And another shout out to my girl, Sam, who took time out of her day to join me on that episode. She was great, and I can't wait to have her back in the future. So thank you again for checking in, even though the episode came out super So I have a lot to get into this week on this episode, so I'm just going to jump right into things. So you know I can't start this podcast any other way. You know I have to get into the slap that was heard around the world. Yes, if you somehow have been asleep this whole time and missed this, I will kind of get into a little background before I share my thoughts with you. So of course the Oscars aired on Sunday night and I didn't watch it live just because, and though I enjoy movies, award shows are, it's the same old bullshit with award shows. So I don't bother with the Oscars and no offense, they're horribly boring. They're probably the most boring award show, in my opinion. So I'm never really up for watching the award show live. I was rooting on the sidelines for Will Smith and anybody black, of course. So I was kind of watching the Oscars through Twitter. Because if you have Twitter or you have any kind of social media, you don't need to watch an award show. Hell, you don't even need to watch certain TV shows either. Because if you follow the right people, they will give you a play-by-play of what's going on. And you didn't have to watch the Oscars to know about that slap. So a little bit of background. I believe Chris Rock was on stage to give what ended up being Questlove's Oscar award. And before he gave the award, he decided to do tell some jokes, if you can call them jokes. And one of the jokes were at the Smith's expense, which is no different than what he did in 2016. Except this time, he told an insensitive joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. For those of you who don't know, Jada Pinkett Smith has been very vocal and transparent about dealing with alopecia, which has caused her to lose pretty much all of her hair. She's been forced to to shave it bald, essentially. And Chris Rock made some quip about her being in the next G.I. Jane, like she was going to be in the sequel. Now, you could tell right away after he told the joke that Jada Pinkett Smith was offended. You could see it. She rolled her eyes like you could tell she was very uncomfortable. And a lot of people have pointed out the fact that Will Smith laughed. Now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when you're in a really awkward situation, sometimes you laugh to kind of brush it off. It's kind of like an awkward laugh or you just kind of want the joke to be over. You want to move on. Will Smith is a comedian himself, so I'm pretty sure that's like a defense mechanism for him. But then I think he realized how offended Jada was and got angry, saw Red, hopped on stage and slapped the shit out of Chris Rock. Now... The internet and the world has pretty much been divided. Some people are team Will, some people are still team Will but don't agree with how he handled things, and some people are team Chris Rock. Let me tell you a little something, and this may be why I don't really love stand-up comedy. A lot of these comedians hide behind their jobs. They use their jobs to be assholes. Yeah, you have freedom of speech, and you're entitled to tell any joke you want, but You also have to remember that people are also entitled to come see you about those jokes. Will and Jada have clearly, and we've been a front seat to this marriage, probably a little, we know a little bit too much about this marriage at this point. But they have been through a lot between the entanglement stuff and near divorce, a lot. And they've been 
the butt of a lot of jokes. I think that gets to a person after a while. Doesn't matter how much of a public figure you are, doesn't matter how big of a star you are, when people are constantly belittling your marriage, you're the butt of every joke, eventually that gets to you. And like I said, Chris Rock has made jokes about Jada before. So I think it was a case of Will Smith losing his cool and he slapped the hell out of Chris Rock. Now, whether you agree or not about how he chose to react, we can we can argue about that all day. I'm of the stance of Will Smith could have chosen a better place to handle that, but he's a human being. Like I said, it doesn't matter how big of a star he is. And I really don't believe that Chris Rock did not know. Because like I said, Jada Pinkett Smith has been open about this for years. I don't believe that anybody at the Oscars didn't know. But according to ABC, Chris Rock ad-libbed that joke. And if that's true, was it worth it? Was it worth telling a joke, stupid, a stupid joke like that and getting slapped in front of millions of viewers and a bunch of people there at the award show? Was it worth it to ad-lib that joke? So I'm having trouble believing that Chris Rock did not know about the illness. And it's funny to me that the same people are saying, oh, it's just a joke, are the same people who were, after Chadwick Boseman died, saying, oh, we need to be careful of how we treat one another because we never know what someone is going through. Jada has been very candid about what she's going through, that she's been suffering from hair loss. And losing hair is not easy for anybody, but especially for black women, part of our identity is in our hair. Like... Black people, period. Like, we, there's a culture there. So to lose your hair, to deal with losing your hair, especially because Jada is who she was for black hair in the 90s, that's a lot. And as her husband, most likely, he was the one that was comforting her during those times, wiping her tears away. He was the shoulder she had to cry on. And now you guys are sitting in front of a bunch of people at the Oscars and getting humiliated. So Will Smith lost it. You just, you have to be careful about what you say about people. You can't just say any old thing about somebody because someone will see you. And Will Smith is very clearly old school and handled it the way he handled it. And Will Smith has publicly apologized. Chris Rock has yet to. And he owes the Smiths an apology. He does. Because like I said, he humiliated her in front of millions and got humiliated right back. But still, I see a lot of people defending Chris Rock. I don't see a lot of people holding him accountable because he was still wrong for that joke. What I am disappointed with is that that, that moment overshadowed Will Smith's big win. This was his first Oscar ever when he sh Ben should have won for Ali. He Ben should have won for The Pursuit of Happiness, which is my favorite Will Smith film. And so he finally gets his moment and it's overshadowed because he lost his cool. He's one of only five black men to win an Oscar. I think, I don't know if it's in general or for that category, but that the Oscars have been around for 94 years. That's a low fucking number. So this was a big moment for him and for the Smiths in general. Will Smith is one of my favorite actors. So even though I wasn't watching the Oscars live, I was rooting for him on the sidelines. I really wanted him to win that award. I hadn't seen the movie yet. It's on my list. It's on HBO Max now, King Richard. But I really wanted him to win. And now when we talk and we think back, to his Oscars win, that's going to be what we remember, him slapping the, the shit out of Chris Rock. I also feel bad for Questlove because he won the award right after that. He won the award that Chris Rock was presenting. So I felt bad for him because it's like, uh, okay, a guy just got slapped and now I just won this award and I have to go up there and give a speech. 
I feel horrible for the Williams sisters because this was a big moment for them too. And a, a movie about their father is nominated for an Oscar. You know, that's overshadowed. So I'm not sure how they feel about the situation. They haven't spoken. I don't know if they will. I know their father spoke out and pretty much said that he he condemned Will Smith and said, you know, we don't we don't encourage violence or, or whatever. And I also kind of feel bad for Lupita as well. She's a beam now, but I'm pretty sure that was awkward for her because she was sitting right next to Will Smith. And so the camera, though the camera didn't get many crowd reactions, they got hers. And so, you know, she had to school her features very, very quickly because obviously she knew she was on camera, but it's kind of hard to, you just witness someone get slapped. And at that moment, when you're, when you are watching in real time or you were on social media in real time as it's happening, at that point, we didn't know whether this was scripted or not, because especially with the original angle that caught it, because after the slap, you know, after it actually happened, more angles of the slap and photos of it came out. But in the original angle, all you do is see, it looks like Will Smith kind of just, it looks like he took a swipe at him. It looked like he punched him. We didn't know what was going on. And so for Lupita, who just witnessed that in real time live, she probably d didn't know what to think or, you know, how to, like, how do you school your features <laughs> after so someone just gets slapped? So I kind of feel bad for her because she was, you know, unknowingly, not really involved, but she was one of the only celebrities that we saw react to the slap. So I kind of feel bad for her too, because I think she just wants, she probably just wants to go there, have a nice time get all dressed up and, you know, hit some Oscars after party after, because I don't think she was nominated for any awards this year. But I do kind of feel bad for her as well. And I think when everybody's saying, oh, it was staged for ratings, you can't stage that kind of anger. Because when Will Smith got back to his seat and he yelled at Chris Rock to keep his wife's name out of his mouth, he was red. He was red. His face was, like, you could see the, the anger visibly on his face. He meant, he, that was... He meant to do that. It, it wasn't fake. I think the fact that they cut out the sound tells you everything. They're not going to cut out a sound if that was just the skit. And the fact that you didn't see many crowd reactions means that they were scrambling to probably cut the feed and go to commercial. So I really am having a hard time believing that was staged at all. And the only reason we heard what actually happened after the slap was because there were uncensored versions from Australia and Japan that caught it. Because on the American version, all you see is Will Smith slapping him, the, sun, the, the sound cuts out, and that's it. And I know, being that I, I've never had the experience on that level, but my experience with television and knowing how that works, I know they were scrambling. I know the, the director and the stage manager were yelling at the camera operators and the soundboard, cut, cut his fucking mic. Cut his fucking mic, cut the sound, go to commercial. I don't care how crazy the cut looks, cut to commercial. We have to, we have to figure out what's going on here because um, it, reports have come out saying that they toyed with the possibility of actually escorting Will Smith off the stage, but they didn't know what to do because he was nominated for the award and they knew obviously that he was going to win. So it's like he's, he's set to win this award. We can't really kick him out. There were some rumors that they were going to possibly and and that would have started a whole new boycott that they were going to take will smith's oscar from him because i feel like if you're going to take will smith's oscar for that slap you might as well take harvey weinstein's and any other predator in the industry you might as well take their oscars from them as well if we're gonna if we're gonna use will smith as that precedent you might as well do that with the others because i believe i read that harvey weinstein has over what 80 90 oscar awards 
So I'm glad that that was cleared up that they weren't going to take his award from him. They did say that it's possible that he would have his academy privileges suspended, which means that he may be banned for the next couple of years. Who knows? But they said that they're looking into, I guess they're, they're investigating and figuring out which course of action they want to take because people are calling for Will Smith to face some consequences for what he did. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be some consequence for that slap, but I am glad that he got to keep his Oscar. It's just a bittersweet moment for him, you know. He finally won, but it's shrouded in controversy. Another thing that bothers me about the slap is that people, racist white people who already were racist, you know, are taking this moment to, are taking advantage of this moment to allow their racist behavior to shine by saying, you know, he could have murdered him. And this is Judd Apatow, by the way. Let me be clear. People like Judd Apatow are, are coming out with these crazy takes from he could have murdered him, which give me a fucking break. It was a slap and a weak one at that, okay? Because Chris Rock didn't even, he didn't knock him out. He didn't fall on his feet. It was pretty tame. It was probably hard enough to hurt, but it was pretty tame. Will Smith could have done a lot worse. Chris Rock could have done a lot worse by continuing on the fight. They could have been brawling up there. That did not happen. Someone also said that what if Will Smith had slapped Betty White? What the fuck does Betty White have to do with this moment? You're creating scenarios that didn't exist. I've seen people compare it to domestic violence, which strikes me to believe that you guys don't know what domestic violence is. What Will Smith did to Chris Rock was assault, but it wasn't domestic violence because Chris Rock is not his spouse. So it's all these crazy takes and all these people coming out with these wild takes. It just reeks of anti-blackness. It does. And it's a shame that they're going to use this moment to say, well, that's why we don't nominate them. That's why they don't win. They're not classy. They don't know how to behave as if white people are the standard for good behavior. Okay? There are a lot more uglier moments in, in Oscars history than this one. And for example, what about the moment that Marlon Brando won an Oscar, refused to take it and had, I believe, a Native American woman take his place, denounce the Oscars and say, hey, you guys have a history of violence towards us in your films. There were literally white men in the audience that had to be held back from security because they were charging at this woman. And you think that what Will Smith did to Chris Rock is the ugliest moment in Oscars history. I don't think so. So a lot of you guys were blowing it out of proportion and making it deeper than it was. And while doing that, not holding Chris Rock accountable either for his part in it. And so after the think pieces came out about the slap, I was checked out. I was like, all right, I said what I had to say about the slap on social media. I'm off this now because now it's spiraling and becoming something that it's not. But that pretty much wraps up my thoughts about the slap. Hopefully now, according to Diddy, because you know Diddy loves to be, he loves attention. He, he has to be involved in anything. They have made amends, like I said, Will Smith publicly apologized to Chris Rock and the Academy and, and, and everybody that he felt like he offended by doing what he did. I doubt his career is going to be affected at all because, again, he is Will Smith. I do anticipate, and maybe after the statement that he gave, maybe not, but I do anticipate them him maybe doing one interview with a, a media journalist that he trusts and kind of discussing not only his Oscars win, but the slap and then kind of putting it to bed. And he'll probably have a very quiet rest of the year. He'll probably not really be in the spotlight after this and I can't really blame him. And that's probably something that his PR team 
is advising him to do. And before I move on from the slap, shout out to Jada Pinkett Smith. I can only imagine how hard it is to deal with alopecia on a severe level in the way that she's dealing with it. And she looks gorgeous bald. I said it even, I, I think you can even find one of my tweets where I commented on how good she looks bald. Like she really pulls off the look. She's extremely gorgeous. So, you know, I can't imagine also how it feels to be humiliated by a joke in front of millions of people. Um, but shout out to Jada Pinkett Smith. She's beautiful. I've been a fan of Jada, so I'm always rooting for Jada, and hopefully they can find some peace after all of this. But moving on from the slap into the Oscars overall, of course, you know, I checked in for Beyonce's performance. Incredible. But this is Beyonce we're talking about, and yes, I have my, my, my hive hat on right now, but... Beyonce always puts on a hell of a show, whether you like her, whether you hate her. One thing you know about Beyonce is that she puts on a hell of a show. She is the greatest living entertainer. So I don't think any of us were shocked. I do love, and I didn't catch this when I was actually watching her performance. I caught it after, but she had Blue Ivy on stage performing with her and it was so cute. And I love the, I love when parents give their children moments to shine like that, where they just naturally include them in what they're doing and I get the feeling that Blue Ivy loves this stuff. She's been in a couple of Beyonce's music videos. Like, I do think that she, I don't know if that's what she wants to do. You can't tell yet. She's very young. But you can see that she that she at least enjoys doing these tiny things with her mom. And so it was cute seeing her, like, dance with the dancers and, and things like that. The live arrangement that she did for Be Alive was gorgeous. But that's one of my favorite parts about a Beyonce performance is because her arrangements are always gorgeous. She looked great. She sounded great. I I know there are some rumors that she's dropping an album in, album in April. I don't know if you guys know that, but that is the rumor. These rumors have been swirling since late last year. There was a rumor that, a, a pretty reliable source too, because it was an industry source that had kind of tweeted this, that both Harry Styles and Beyonce were expected in the first quarter. Um, Harry Styles announced his album, which I'll get into a little bit in more detail later and so they're both columbia so because now harry has announced his album it's expected that beyonce will announce hers obviously we're more in the second quarter now so but things change at the time they could have been first quarter for both of them and things changed so a lot of people are expecting a beyonce album soon especially because she kind of broke her hiatus to perform at the oscars because we've been waiting a long time for beyonce to put something out i don't really I'm hesitant to believe that she'll drop something maybe um, next month. Maybe it's to protect my peace. I don't think that we'll leave this year without getting a new Beyonce album. I just don't know if we're really going to get it in April. But I will say that if Beyonce does drop a new single sometime this month or by next month that the album is near because as of late, Beyonce's thing has been dropping her lead single and then about a month later giving us the album. So... I will say, though, that the rumors aren't completely unfounded because it is coming from the industry. I just don't want to get my hopes up, you know, if that makes sense. But yeah, Beyonce's performance at the Oscars, amazing. And again, shout out to Questlove for winning his award. Um, I believe it's a music, it's a black music documentary. I actually added it onto my list because I really read good things about it. It's on Hulu and I'm forgetting the name of it, but shout out to Questlove for that. I believe that's his first Oscars award. And shout out to, I believe her name is Ariana Debo Debose, Debose? Hopefully I'm correct. I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. She is the 
the first Afro-Latina openly queer woman to win an Oscar, and that's always um, something to celebrate. It's sad that she is the first, but at least now she's got an Oscar and maybe it'll open the doors for other people like her to win as well. But shout out to her. I love West Side Story. I, I haven't seen the new film yet. I was a little hesitant because of Ansel Elgort's um, involvement in the film, and I'm not going to get into to him and his issues. But I did hear relatively good things about it. I did love the original movie. I think it's from the 60s. And I watched it as a kid. One of my teachers, maybe my music teacher, put it on for us and I fell in love with it. I love a good musical. And the original is actually on HBO Max as well. So I plan on rewatching that before I watch the new one. But yeah, shout out to everybody I mentioned who won an Oscar. Of course, I was rooting for Will Smith to win the Oscar. But Andrew Garfield was nominated for the same award. And even though he didn't win, I am glad that he was at least nominated because Tick, Tick, Boom was a really, really good movie. And that's actually a segue because I finally watched the movie Sunday night ahead of the Oscars because I've been wanting to watch the movie for a while, but I put it out. I put it off because I knew how emotional it was. And at the time that the movie came out, I just wasn't ready to kind of sit through the movie and, and deal with that. But I was like, you know what? The Oscars are coming on. And I kind of want to watch one of the Oscar nominated films because I, like I told you, I've been so behind on movies and TV and I don't think I watched any of the Oscar nominated films, which is so bad I know. So I was like, okay, it'll make me feel better if I at least watch one. So I decided to go with that one and I wanted to share my thoughts with you guys. So Tick, Tick, Boom is a film that captures what it's like to have a specific dream and a timeline for when you're supposed to achieve those dreams and feeling like you're running out of time when you have yet to kind of be where you want to be in life. This is something a lot of creatives from the ages 23 to 30 feel, including myself. So when I knew that that was kind of what the movie was about, it drew me to it because at 23, I feel like I should have already had my foot in the door and already kind of being at least on an intro level to my job field. And that by the time I'm at least 30, I should have this done, I should have that done. And that's something that Jonathan Larson, who the film is really about in real life, struggled with a lot because he had these people that he looked up to in his field that had already achieved certain things at a younger age than him. And it kind of makes you feel like, well, what am I doing wrong? Because all of the people around me, they're already starting to achieve um, their dreams. They already have their foot in the door. And at this point, he's 29 and he doesn't even have his foot in the door yet. So it's a very... It's a relatable feeling, but it's also like one of the worst feelings ever, especially when you have a dream that has essentially become your whole life. You go to sleep thinking about it, you daydream about it, you think about it 24-7, you take steps to try to make this dream happen as much as possible, like you eat, breathe, and sleep this dream. And when it's not working out for you and you're, you feel like, okay, you're about to turn 30, you're about to hit a, a real adulthood because your 20s is kind of like your your you're faking it until you make it. And then by the time you hit 30, we all have this expectation that you should have your shit together. By 30, you should already be in your career field. You should already be, you should be well into it actually, not even just on an intro level. You should be well into it. Like these are the thoughts that we all think. And the movie does a really, really good job at capturing this feeling and, and making it feel human, not just dousing it in Hollywood magic. Like this really felt real. Like. Jonathan Larson in this film felt like someone I know in real life. He felt like one of 
my friends in my friend group. Just the way he acted, the way he spoke, the way he handled this trying time in his life. I think a lot of us who have been out of college for only a couple of years really could relate to this character in the story. So imagine dealing with this while also struggling with loss as those you love are dying all around you. It makes your time on Earth seem even more crucial. This film is set in 1990, and at this time, the AIDS epidemic was a death sentence. And all of his friends are catching this disease and dying from it. So when you're dealing with a lot of death, it makes your time seem that much shorter. Obviously, once you lose someone, you're reminded life really is short. But when you're losing a lot of people, when you're surrounded by that, it's... I don't exactly have the right words to capture that feeling. I just can relate to it because in 2020, that's what it felt like. All of these people are dying. You have a fear that you could be next. And then you think to yourself, well, what the hell am I doing with my life? I've been wasting so much time. And now I'm being reminded every day as each as the next person dies that life, I don't have a lot of time left. So you already feel like you should be well into your career by 29 but you're not, and now a whole lot of your friends are dying too. It's like, it emphasizes that feeling, that desperateness even more. Andrew Garfield really delivered a powerful and emotional performance. He was incredible in this role. You really believe that he was Jonathan Larson like that. Like I said, that desperation, that passion for music and for writing and for creating songs and creating a show, you really felt like that was Andrew Garfield's life and I completely understand why he was nominated for an Oscar for this performance he was incredible I didn't even know he could sing but he was really really good I shouldn't even be surprised these days because a lot of actors can sing it's kind of like something that your agent probably tells you that you should learn how to do because it opens you up to it makes you more what's the word I'm looking for you're multifaceted. So a lot of these actors can sing, they can dance, they can do all of these different things. And he was really good. The cast overall was really strong too. Vanessa Hudgens was in this movie and we know she can sing her ass off. Duh, she got her start in High School Musical, but even past that, she was incredible in Greece. She was incredible in this film. Robin de Jesus, he was incredible as well. He played Jonathan Larson's best friend who eventually by the end of the movie dies from AIDS as well. But he was incredible. They're singing just this. I could, there's another actress too, and, and I'm. Her name is slipping me, but she was she was really great as well. The soundtrack is exceptional. I actually saved a couple of songs from the soundtrack, and you know a musical is good when you can return back to the soundtrack over and over again. Overall, though, this movie was greatly put together, and it makes me have an even greater appreciation for Rent, and Rent is one of my favorite musicals outside of Greece. Jonathan Larson is extremely talented, and it really is a shame that he died before he got to see what Rent became. He literally died, it was either the night or the day of the show's first performance. Like He had finally made it into Broadway. I think at the time, Rent was off-Broadway. I could be wrong. And he didn't even get to see it. So that kind of broke my heart because this was clearly a man who had a fear that he was running out of time. The name is literally called Tick, Tick, Boom. It's after one of um, his, um, Jonathan Larson's plays. And so this man had a real fear of running out of time and, and his life was cut short. I think he was 35 when he died. 
and he was just starting to make it and he would have I know he would have went on to create other incredible pieces of work so it is a shame that he didn't get to see it but I'm glad we got Rent because like I said it's one of my favorite musicals with one of the best soundtracks from any plays ever so I give this film a five out of five you can also head on to my letterboxd which is, I believe, Kayla V15, all lower caps, and see my review of Tick, Tick, Boom there as well. Moving on from Tick, Tick, Boom, I wanted to get into the music part of the episode. I'm going to start off with my album review of Super Ghetto by Buddy. Now, in a scene where Drill and Atlanta's influence is undeniable, Super Ghetto is rooted in the West Coast. It has influences of G-Funk from the 90s mixed with Buddy's own identity, which is filled with live instrumentation, hints of jazz, and some soul. Super Ghetto is an insistence that Buddy is who he is and won't ever forget where he comes from. Now, Buddy first caught my attention on Revenge of the Dreamers 3, but now on Super Ghetto, he has grown into a seasoned artist who has a strong finger on the type of music he wants to make. I could really hear his potential on Revenge of the Dreamers 3, and then after that, I listened to his debut album and, you know, now we're at Super Ghetto and I feel like he has more than lived up to his potential. He can hang with the best of rappers, but I also love that he sings a little bit too because he does pull it off well. And songs like Bad News and Happy Hour don't sound out of place on the album. And it's why songs like Coolest Things with Ari Lennox work because he's got the soul to fit with her on a record. And if you're going to sing on a song with Ari Lennox, you have to sing for real. And so he was able to pull that off. So he's definitely versatile. Buddy is able to move through different topics from black pride, identity and culture to deep introspection to fun up-tempo vibes with ease and without any clutter. It didn't feel like this album was trying to do too much at once. He just kind of moved through each topic with ease. It's a 10 track concise and digestible album that doesn't leave room for any fillers. Buddy knew exactly what he wanted to say on Super Ghetto, and after that, he moves right on. The top tracks from this album are Hoochie Mama, Black 2, Happy Hour, Coolest Things, and Bad News. I'm gonna start off with Hoochie Mama. Not only is this a great intro to an album deeply rooted in the West Coast, his environment, and identity, it's also a great introduction into who Buddy is as an artist and person. Hoochie Mama is backed by a Bitches Ain't Shit sample, which gives the song that 90s G-Funk sound and makes you feel like you're riding around in a lowrider. It's authentic and makes you feel like you're where he's from. It also kind of sets the tone for the album, too. My favorite lines are, quote, Damn, coming around the corner, pulling up on you, music blasting, cheating on her baby daddy because that nigga trash. The next song is Black 2. A sequel that manages to be better than the original, Black 2 came out right on time. This song was released during the George Floyd protests and the social unrest in 2020 as well as the Black Lives Matter 2020 movement. This song captures the exasperation black people felt at the time and still currently feel at non-black people taking from our culture but are silent when it comes to actually caring and fighting for us. They want to say the n-word, they want to steal our fashion and our culture, but can't say Black Lives Matter. The staccato drums emphasize that anger and also emphasize every bar he spits on the song. It's definitely a highlight off of this album for sure, and even though he released it in 2020, it doesn't seem out of place on Super Ghetto. My favorite lines are, quote, Everybody trying to get dreads and shit, but they ain't African. All the light girls getting a tan so they can darken their skin, I'm sorry, it's a black thing. 
as well as, quote, my shit black owned. If you ain't a nigga, then you can't say nigga. It's a black thing. The next song on my list is Happy Hour, which features T-Pain. This track has some of my favorite production on it. The combination of DeMille and Robert Glasper results in live instrumentation heaven. You know DeMille is good for this. It has a distinctly 80s sound to it. The bass is so soulful and drives the song. T-Pain was the perfect choice for this track, not only because the song is about drinking, but because his voice is a good fit for the production, and his ad-libs and runs are crazy. The song is just the vibe overall. My favorite lines are, quote, happy hour, henny sour, margarita, why you so, why you so salty at happy hour, henny sour, tequila soda, why you so sad at happy hour. Next is Coolest Things, which features Ari Lennox. This is a deeply introspective record about things that may seem cool and fun on the surface, but really they aren't. We're fascinated by things we don't have that seem cool from the outside looking in, but once you have or experience it for yourself, you realize it's not all that great. This could be fame that Buddy is referring to on the song, who knows? In his first verse, he talks about his mental health and being surrounded by people who don't care about him beyond the surface level. He rhymes calm and even paced on his verses, but you can still hear and feel every word he says very clearly. Ari's soulful vocals on the hook really brings the song together, especially backed by DeMille's soulful and jazzy production. My favorite lines on Coolest Things are, quote, The depth of perception, big smile on my face, still going through depression. I'm running in place, but I keep on stepping. The last song on my list is Bad News. Other than the fun, up-tempo beat, what really drew me to the song was the storytelling Buddy did on this track. He tells the story of a man who claims he's been framed for a crime he didn't commit, and now he's on the run. He takes a break from rapping and decides to sing instead, but it works. His cadence on the track really pairs well with the 80s-inspired big band type of production that you hear on the record. It's just a fun vibe with a good story, and I really do hope that Buddy gives it a music video if he hasn't already. My favorite lines are, quote, Bad news got some real bad news. I heard they was coming for me, but I ain't do it. I just ain't do it. Super Ghetto is a breath of fresh air from an artist who isn't concerned with being anyone other than himself. So that wraps up my thoughts on Buddy's Super Ghetto album. Please listen to it if you haven't yet. It's definitely worth your time. And in a time right now in music where it's super slow, it's definitely a great opportunity for you to listen to some new artists. And um, I definitely recommend Buddy as someone you should listen to. I also wanted to talk a little bit about Lotto's 777 album. Now, I'm not well-versed on Lotto. I don't listen to a lot of her music, so this isn't... I didn't structure her review like a typical review. I'm kind of just talking about things I liked and stuff like that because it was easier for me to digest her album that way. So first off, I really liked her album more than I thought I would. I've heard her freestyle before. I've heard a couple of songs here and there. I knew she could rap, but there was never a song that really drew me into her. But like I mentioned before, music's been kind of dry over the past couple of months. So I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to listen to artists that I typically don't listen to. I didn't really care for Big Energy. My Shout out to my mom, though. She really likes that song. I have yet to listen to the remix with Mariah. But I wasn't crazy about Big Energy. I, but I, I respected it, though, because I see what she was trying to do, and it worked. It just wasn't for me. But overall... Lotto's new album is a well-balanced sophomore effort that combines her core sound with her mainstream sound. 
She has the singles that are good for radio, like I mentioned, Big Energy, Wheelie, which features 21 Savage, and Sunshine, which features Lil Wayne, and I forgot who the other artist is that's featured on that song. And then she has songs with more of her rugged Southern style. Lotto and her team did a really good job of, okay, we see the mainstream success of Big Energy, let's kind of build on that while not losing her core audience. Let's still give them what they love from Lotto, but she is evolving, she is growing, she's still a relatively new artist, so she has to evolve. It seemed like 777 is a natural progression for Lotto that was done really, really well. The songs I liked on this album are Wheelie, Sunshine, It's Given, and Stepper. Now, It's Given and Stepper, those were like the, okay, the more of the rugged southern style that Lotto does. I'm giving you the bars. It's, you know, I'm giving you something hard. It's not any of that squeaky clean radio records. Like, these are the records that I'm spitting on. And I liked Sunshine. She was doing more melodic stuff on it, but... I really liked it. I love the production. Wheelie was cool as well. I think I would enjoy Bust Down a lot better without Kodak Black. I don't fuck with the guy. I don't think he's talented whatsoever. I cannot stand him on records. But if she puts out a remix of Bust Down with maybe Cardi B on it, I could rock with that. So that pretty much wraps up my short thoughts on Lotto 777 album. Another uh, body of work that I recommend if you're looking for something new to listen to and you haven't heard it yet or you haven't heard of Lotto, definitely check it out. So that wraps up my album reviews. I'm going to get into some of the singles from last week and the week before because I don't, I don't think I did some of the new releases from the week before because I put out the Euphoria bonus episode. So we're going to start off with We Go Up by Nicki Minaj and Fabio Foreign. This song is the best song out of all the singles Nicki has released, which is shocking to me because I didn't originally like the snippet of the song when she posted it on Instagram. And I had even originally voted against her even putting it out because she tweeted, oh, do you guys want me to scrap the song like I was going to originally do or do you guys want the song? And I put no because from the snippet, I'm like, it's cool, but it's not worth being on the album. And then the song came out and I was like, if I had to pick the between the three songs she's released already, do we have a problem busting in this one? I'm definitely going to go with this one. This should have been her lead single. What I love about the song is that it's a return to form in a way while also trying something new. It's a drill beat, but Nikki is barring up like it's 07 again and she's filming videos in Queens, you know. She sounds hungry and her flow and cadence is fucking nuts on this. Fabio does his thing too, but man, Pop would have skated on this. We Go Up is a true Brooklyn anthem and deserves to be the song of the summer for New York. My favorite lines are, quote, I know they teabagging bitches is testy. Get you a vacuum, bitches is messy. Let's see, after all of that surgery, you are still ugly. Now that is what gets me. And also, quote, I wish a bitch would spin. I'm like, please show up. The next song I'm going to get into it also has Nicki Minaj on it. It's Blick Blick by Koyla Ray and Nicki Minaj. Now, y'all know I don't like Koi, so I was on the fence when this collab was announced. But I was proven wrong again, because it's actually dope. Now, that's what I like about this era from Nicki Minaj so far, is that every time I'm on the fence about something, every time I'm like, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if I can fuck with this, I don't know if I like where this is going, she ends up proving me wrong, which I love to be proven wrong. And I, and then... My ego is not that big where I can't admit that I'm wrong. So I'm glad that I I have been wrong about these past couple of songs because I think it's more enjoyable when you go into a song with not a whole lot of expectations and you come out of it really liking it. The beat on Blick Blick is dope. 
I love the flow switches between both Koi and Nikki. Koi can actually rap when she's not doing that stupid, whiny mumble flow, and if she rapped like this more often, I'd be willing to listen to her more. Nikki bodied her verse. I love her on trap beats because she just kills it, and this song is no different. My favorite lines are, quote, I done ran up all these comma, comma, commas, eat the cookie like a nutter butter butter, lick this pussy like just fa-la-la-la-la, island ting she a Bahama mama mama. My second favorite part is also, quote, every nigga trying to pop ain't the next woo. Don't run up in my DM, RIP to X2. Check who. Niggas really spin your block if the queen send a text through. Just because those lines in Nikki's verse were super clever. Like, I'm pretty sure most people had the same favorite line from her verse because it just automatically sticks out. This next song on my list is Fair by Normani. So this song is produced by Justin Bieber's main go-to producer, Harv, and co-written by his wife, singer Felicia King. You may know her from Cherish who despite her shitty personality is actually a great writer. Fair is Normani at her most vulnerable and finally feels like we're getting to know her more deeply. It's a beautiful modern take on an R&B ballad. Though I still don't care for the vocal effect on her runs during the hook, Normani's vocals sound beautiful and soft overall. The production doesn't overpower her voice and instead lets it shine. Singles from her may not be enough to hold me over anymore, but between Fair and Wild Side, I feel confident in her album. She just needs to finally drop it. My favorite lines are, quote, Is it fair that you moved on? Because I swear that I haven't. Is it right that you've grown and I'm still stuck in habits? Because I'm finding it strange that you're better than average. Hearts don't break down the middle. Tell me, how did that happen? The next song I wanted to get into is the extended version of No Love by Summer Walker, SZA, and Cardi. Now, I went into this song really excited because I like the original and I'm like, I wonder how Cardi is going to approach the record. She said, oh, it's something different. You never heard this side of me before. I'm like, cool. You know, I'm always down for artists who aren't typically vulnerable to kind of show that side of them. And I was highly disappointed. Cardi did not sound right on this record. I think that if they were going to do a remix of No Love, they should have added another R&B singer on it instead. Someone like Kehlani would have worked. Her would have worked on this record. Ella would have worked on this record. Cardi is not the strongest singer. And when you're on a record with singers that actually can sing like Summer Walker and SZA, it's that much more obvious. And her vocal effects sounded cheap and fake and computerized. It just wasn't giving for me. She rapped a little bit, but her lines weren't hitting enough for me. And I don't mean hitting as in, give me some bars. This is Cardi we're talking about. I mean, like, her lines weren't good enough to hold me or to move me. I don't think that Cardi was the right fit for No Love. I think that if Summer Walker wanted her on a remix, X for a Reason would have worked. That song that she has with JT, that would have worked. I think Toxic with Little Dirk could have worked only if she didn't try to sing. But because it's a melodic record, because Dirk gives a melodic verse, I have a feeling she would try to do the same. But maybe if it was written better or, you know, she wasn't trying to sing sing and it was just kind of something a little melodic, it could have worked. But she definitely wasn't a fit on No Love at all. The last song I wanted to get into is the Good Morning Gorgeous remix with her, which is what I've been waiting for for a while. Because her co-wrote the record, I'm like, it would be a perfect opportunity for her to be on the remix. I'm glad she wasn't on the original because the message was so specific to Mary and what she had been through in her life that nobody really should have been on that record with her for the original. But for the remix, I'm like, this, you know, I can hear hers 
fingerprint all over this record. If she did a remix, like it would fit. And their voices melted together like butter. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. It's just as good as the original. I definitely saved it. Definitely check it out if you haven't heard it already. If you loved Mary's album, this is definitely a treat. So that wraps up my song reviews and just my music reviews, period. Definitely check out all of those songs I got into and give me your opinion. Let me know if you agree with my takes. If you completely disagree, let me know. I'm always down to hear other opinions other than my own. Moving on from my reviews and on to some new music announcements, Kehlani finally announced that their new album, Blue Water Road, will drop April 29th. Now, as you guys know, this album had been delayed. It was originally supposed to come out in the winter. So I'm assuming that we were actually supposed to get the album in December or even January. But we're now getting it in April, which is fine. As long as we get the album, I'm cool with that. I don't know what caused the delay. I know Kehlani had done a couple of shows so that could have been a reason it could have been that the album took on new form and that caused a delay or Kehlani just kept recording music and just who knows I believe it was good until it wasn't came out in April too around her birthday no maybe it was May I don't remember now but it was good until it wasn't came out around the same time now from what we heard of some of the music from Blue Water Road it's a much more softer and peaceful path it's more pop you know it was good until it wasn't while we wait and even sweet sexy savage that was more r&b and so blue water rose seems to be a softer pop album and i'm here for it you know as much as i love kaylani doing r&b music because that's what she's good at i also will appreciate an artist evolving and trying new things as long as she's not done with r&b forever i'm cool with that Kehlani also announced a new song with Justin Bieber called Up At Night. It's coming out this Friday. And I laughed when I saw that he was featured on the record because I remember them talking about, oh, I had Justin Bieber, I sent Justin Bieber a song after we did a song on his album, Changes, because they have a song on there called Get Me, which I love. And Kehlani said that the song was a little too sexy for Bieber because, you know, as you know, if you don't know, I, I can't even assume that you know, Bieber is now more of, He's more God-fearing than he was before. Like he got into religion and he's just, I don't know what the word is, but he's, you could just say he's religious. And so he is not into, I guess, doing the super sexy stuff, which is funny to me because on Justice, he, he didn't have a song like that was overtly sexual, but he definitely had hints of it. Even on Changes, there were hints of it. So it was funny say, hearing Kehlani say that the song didn't work out because it was a little too much for him. It was a little too sexy. So considering the song is up at night and the, the cover is a little seductive, maybe Justin Bieber came around and said, you know what, fuck it, I'm a married man, you know, who most likely has sex with his wife anyway, so I guess it's not too, it's, it's not too wrong for me to do a little something sexual. Or maybe the song isn't, maybe the song is not super crazy. You know, maybe it's tame and he felt more comfortable with that. Who knows? I'm just glad that they are looking up together on a song again because I really did like Get Me and I'm really excited for Blue Water Road. Ella May also announced that she's dropping her sophomore album, Heart on My Sleeve, May 6th. Now, I was a little shocked that she's already announcing an album just because I felt like, okay, this is, you know, Don't Fuck Me Up was the first song we got from her in two years because I believe Not Another Love Song came out in 2020. So this is the first song we got in two years. The song is okay. It's nothing super special. It's not horrible, but it's not great. It's not as good as Not Another Love Song. 
And so now she's already announcing her album. I have to assume that we're most likely going to get a new single from her next month because March is practically over. She hasn't announced a new single yet. So I'm assuming we're going to get something in April. We kind of have to if the album is coming out May 6th. And all I have to say, one, I hope that this next single is more upbeat. And I also hope that her album isn't super, super slow. I love what she did on her debut album, but I do want her to change the pace because it's like, okay, you showed us what you were capable of on the debut album, but we're going to need more. We're going to need something different. It can't be the same formula you had on your debut album because the same formula that worked for you then is not going to work for you now. So I do hope that she picks up the pace. Now, some artists, their bag is to just give you slow records. You know, like Giveon, he's known as being more of a ballad type of singer. Adele, for the most part, is a ballad type of singer. Occasionally, she'll give you the more upbeat records. But even on Adele, 30 was a nice change for her because she did give us more of those upbeat records. She did give us something different. It wasn't a completely slow album like the other ones had been. Even Snow Allegra, who's known as more of a kind of a, a slow R&B, who's known for making slow R&B songs, even on a Temporary High, she gave us more upbeat records. She tried new things she stepped outside of her comfort zone and it worked so that's what i'm hoping for ella just a little step outside of the comfort zone it doesn't have to be a complete like 180 like a like a complete switch but at least try something new harry styles like i said a little bit earlier in the episode he announced that his new album harry's house drops may 20th and i'm not gonna hold you i was never a huge harry styles fan when he was in one direction i was more into zane and his music and I wasn't crazy about his debut album, but Fine Line came out and I think it had been out for months. And I just, I kept hearing good things about it. And then I would hear Watermelon Sugar and I'd hear Adore You and I'd really like those records. And I was like, okay, this sounds a little bit different than what he'd done on his debut album. I'll give it a chance. So I sat down, I listened to Fine Line and fell in love with it. It is a, such a good album and such a complete change from the debut, and thank God. I don't know, I, I kept the feeling, and, and, and it's understandable because it was the debut, that it wasn't fully him. It was, okay, I had the success in One Direction, but now I'm a solo act. I'm signed to Columbia. Whatever Columbia wants me to do, I kind of will, I'll do what they want on the first album. But Fine Line felt like it was more him. And so because I enjoyed Fine Line so much, I'm really looking forward to Harry's House because I feel like it's more in the direction that Fine Line was in. Now, I'm not expecting the same album, but I feel like it's more, this is going to be an album from Harry. It's not going to be what Columbia wants. It's not going to be what this person wants. It's going to be his vision. So if, if it's as good as Fine Line, then I'm really looking forward to it. I also read a report that Megan Thee Stallion has a new docuseries in the works. I forgot what they said it would be detailing. I think maybe her road to where she is now. I think being that Megan has been through a lot over the course of the past two years, that a docuseries is going to be really interesting. And maybe we'll even get some footage of, of her recording new music as well. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a new album from her this year. Moving on from music, though, a deleted five-minute scene of Barry Kogan's Joker was released last week, and he was absolutely terrifying, but I love it. This is one of the first times that you really see the Joker without his makeup on. I'm not sure if it's 
maybe I should take back one of the first. One of the first for me. I don't. I haven't seen a lot of the Joker actors without the makeup on, where you can see his scars. But this Batman universe is really dark and twisted, and it's more rooted in realism. So they made the Riddler a serial killer instead of like a campy villain or, or whatever. He it felt real. It felt like okay. Batman is the world's greatest detective. He's actually a detective, but he just likes to dress up in a bat suit and, and, and fight crime, you know? And so it makes sense that this Joker would be equally as terrifying, and he was. Barry Kogan is not even recognizable. If I didn't know that was who was playing the Joker, I wouldn't have realized that that was him. I definitely understood why they cut it out of the film. It would have been, a, it would have been, you would have been able to tell that it was filler. It definitely wasn't needed. It didn't progress the plot any further like my dad said it looked kind of crazy that Batman went to the Joker for help but it was nice to still get the scene anyway it was nice to kind of see or get a taste of what Barry Kogan's Joker looks and feels like I do hope that they save the Joker arc for the third and final movie of the film because you want to build up to the Joker the Joker is the most iconic Batman villain so you want to build up to that you don't want to give too much away in the first film you don't even want to give it to the second you kind of want to give the audience something to hold on to so I think they were smart with how they handled this they gave us a tiny introduction to the Joker at by the end of the first film so that we can got to get a taste of him and then we it gives the audience something to look forward to because we know for sure that we're going to get a Joker in this universe. We just have to wait for it a little bit. So that was kind of nice to kind of get that scene, even if it wasn't needed in the actual movie itself. Now on to a little bit of TV news. So the Grownish season four finale aired last week and a bunch of the main casts have exited the show from Chloe and Halle Bailey, from... France, Francea, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Francea Raja, she left. Um, the guy who played Vivek is gone. The only ones that are remaining are Diggy Simmons, Yara Shadidi, which makes sense. She's the main character, and Trevor Jackson, who plays Aaron. Now, I really don't know if. Oh, and also they're adding Zoe's brother junior onto the to the cast and he's I guess going to be starting his college journey and I guess for him it's cool because it kind of keeps his character alive now that Blackish is ending I don't know if the show is still worth watching now that the main most of the main cast is gone I feel like the show should have just ended because they graduated and if they wanted to keep the show going that much they could have showed their life after college as much as I love Zoe well, I can't even say I love Zoe. Zoe gets on my nerves. So really, as much as I love Yara, <laughs> the actress who plays her in real life, I don't think the show is strong enough without the rest of the cast. Because what made the show work in the first place was the cast. Their chemistry with each other. And I should have known that this was coming because Francea had booked another show that she was filming. She wasn't really promoting Grownish as much. She was promoting How I Met Your Father. You know, Halle Bailey had left a year ago because she went off to go film The Little Mermaid. Chloe is obviously starting her solo music career. So a lot of the cast was already kind of starting the next chapter. And so I guess I shouldn't have been super shocked. And I had even tweeted, I'm like, is Francia leaving the show? Because she's on a whole other show now. I doubt she has time to do both. And clearly Gronish was filmed before she committed to um, How I Met Your Father. 
So I should have saw it coming, but I was still shocked to see so many of the main cast go, and I feel like the writers did a horrible job of wrapping up their storylines. We got no closure on Skye. She went off to the Olympics and she never came back. So we don't know what she's doing. We don't know if she's if she just decided to not finish college because she got into the Olympics and wanted a career as an athlete. Who knows? We don't really know what Jazz is doing after college. Not really. She decided that the Olympics weren't her end goal anymore. She fell into a depression. She had to figure out what she wanted to do in life. The most they said was that she was helping her dad make his um, food truck more of an actual business. Doug is obviously still going to be in Gronish in season five, so we, we'll see where he goes. Vivek, we know he is going to another college to start over after being expelled. Nomi got into Yale. She's taking her daughter with her, and the father of her baby is moving with them so they could be a family. And Anna is still deciding what kind of lawyer she wants to be. But I feel like we didn't really get closure for a lot of the characters. We didn't even get a real final moment with them together you know zoe ends up getting trapped on the roof so she doesn't actually get to walk across the stage we don't see the others walk across the stage they don't get one final moment all together we kind of just see them hug each other and they go their separate ways so i really feel like the season four finale of Gronish could have been written a lot better like i said on twitter it really does remind me of the what they did with a different world where the main cast had graduated and then we got to see their life a little bit outside of college and then they brought in the new crop of students which included jada pinkett smith's character and the show just didn't work as well outside of college for them when a show was based on high school or college and then you know the characters graduate it can be very difficult to navigate the show after and so sometimes it's better to not even try instead of trying to follow them off to college or trying to follow them um, after life in college it can be tricky because what made the show work doesn't work outside of that setting so i really can't see myself watching season five i am sad to see this show in its original form end though moving on from grownish the cw has renewed several new shows including the flash riverdale and all american which are not a shock because these are staples for the CW. Batwoman is on the bubble, but if they can renew Riverdale, which hasn't been good for years, then they can give Batwoman another season. The show has potential, it just needs some more work. I've already said a few times what the show needs to work on. It just needs better storylines, stronger villains, but it definitely deserves a fighting chance. There's, there's something there, they just need to expand on it. So before I wrap up this episode, I wanted to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is Blick Blick by Coyle Ray and Nicki Minaj. I've had it on replay ever since it came out. I'm obsessed with it. Like I said, I really like how Nicki Minaj has been sounding lately and I want her to keep up on that energy. If you haven't heard it yet, then definitely check it out and let me know what you think. We have reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to me rant and ramble for a little over an hour. It is always appreciated. If you want to keep up with this podcast further, then please head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I even have a YouTube page. And if you want to support this podcast further, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations, which can be found on my Anchor page or on my website, which is again, www.listentomespeak.com. And if you really love this podcast, then please consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate podcasts. 
And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.